Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Linda McKissick with Keller Williams Realty in Denton, Texas. Last year, her team closed 250 transactions with a total sales volume of $50 million. Her average sales price was $200,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. She has a 12-member team, six buyer agents, two admin team, one marketing, one receptionist, one runner, and one lead agent. Linda McKissick is a 7th level team owner who's removed herself from the day-to-day operation, yet retains an ownership position and receives a passive income stream. She's been an agent for 27 years. In her best year, 2012, her team sold 300 homes worth $62 million and earned a GCI of $2.2 million. In this call, Linda talks about the huge upside the real estate business offers. How she went from 600000 in debt when she began her real estate career to earning $3 million per year in passive income today. Using big models to achieve big results. How to turn your time-consuming real estate practice into a 7th level team that runs without you and pays you a passive income stream year after year. Why you want to hire and partner with empire builders and build a bigger, brighter future for you and your team members. The downside to doing everything yourself and living commission check to commission check. Opening your eyes to new possibilities, walking through natural doors, and building a business bigger than you initially imagined. How to structure the sale of your team and receive a 10-year income stream. Building a $30 million real estate portfolio filled with little rental houses that generates $146,000 per month in rental income. Expanding from agent to team leader to office broker to region owner. How she helped other offices grow and now receives $1.2 million per year in passive income. And much, much more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Linda. Thank you. Happy to be here, Mike. Thank you. Hey, Linda, it's great to have you. Linda, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. You know, I was 23 years old when I got into real estate, so I had not done a whole lot. I remember very vividly trying to figure out what I could do that made decent money. You know, I I always tell people I come from a family of hard workers, you know, started working at a very young age at my dad's construction site always had jobs all through high school, sometimes two and three jobs. And so hard work wasn't my issue. My issue was I didn't have any skills that could make very much money. And so before I got into real estate, I actually had gone back to college even because I didn't go to college right out of high school. And I was just trying to figure out who am I and what can I do? And 
I remember very vividly right after I turned 18, uh, a friend of mine that I used to work with at the Dairy Queen got me a job at her husband's general telephone company. And it was the first real job I'd actually ever had. And I remember on Sunday afternoons, my stomach would start hurting and I couldn't figure out why is my stomach hurting. And later I would realize my stomach was hurting because I was really more of an entrepreneurial spirit and having to go in at eight and get off at five just really didn't fill me up. It didn't match my soul. And so I think that was kind of my body's way of reacting to what I was doing. And so I tease and say, so I got into real estate where you can go in way before eight and get off way after five. But for some reason, uh, I loved it, and it fit who I was naturally. And But before then, I really just had a lot of different jobs and trying to figure out how to make decent money at something. Why did you decide to go the, the real estate route? What enticed you about real estate, or why did you go into real estate? Well, actually, in the late 80s in Texas, our economy crashed. Our economy was built on oil and gas the savings and loan and real estate, and they all three basically just buckled. I, you know, I was 23 years old. I didn't even know what the word economy meant, much less whether it was a good one or a bad one. <laughs> but my husband had, at the time was, and my husband still today, but my husband at the time was owning restaurants and, and nightclubs. And so besides going to college to try to get a degree in something, I would also work at night in his uh, nightclubs and restaurants helping him. And so I knew something was wrong because, to be honest with you, he didn't want to go to bed at night. And I would soon find out because he would come to me and tell me he needed he needed help, that we were $600,000 in debt. And so I, I looked at him and said, you know, well, you know I'm a hard worker. Uh, and so, I, but but let me ask you, what do you think I should do? I've never been able to make a lot of money, so what do you think I should do? And he looked at me and said, you know, a, a peewee coach of his that had been a mentor most of his life had said one time, if you want to make a lot of money, real estate is the way to do it. Now, we kind of laugh today because I, I think the mentor probably was telling somebody to buy some real estate to get wealthy and not put your wife to work in it, but the reality is, is it actually was a perfect vehicle for what we needed, and it was a perfect fit for me even though it didn't start out, you know, necessarily me going gangbusters, it was a perfect vehicle to get us out of the situation that we were in. And so I did it because he suggested it to me. I'd never even knew anyone in real estate or knew what you did if you sold real estate. I just did it because he suggested it. And I said, okay, great. How do I do it? When you did get into the business way back then, that first year, did you have a fast start or a slow start? It was very slow. I only made $3,000 gross. Jimmy said that was real gross because it probably cost him 15000 that year for me to try to sell real estate, and I only made three. So it was a very slow start. You know, training, there was just not a lot of training. I chose an independent to go with in the beginning, and, and honestly, she had no training at all. I literally would get up in the morning at 5 a.m. and go to the gym with her and run on the treadmill beside her to try to pick her brain and ask her, what do I do now? I mean, how do I get some business? And so after about six months, I gave up on that and went to a, a local franchise, which was Century 21. And they had two weeks training that you got before you started. And then basically that's all the training they had too. So it wasn't until I found uh, and an actually an affiliate paid for me to go to a Mike Ferry seminar in Fort Worth, Texas, that was really the game changer for me because I realized that there was training out there and there were people with answers. I was just going to have to go find those, those answers. They weren't going to be in my local office. 
how long have you been in real estate? How long has it been? I want to say I got my license in 86 or 87, maybe the end, probably the first, uh, beginning, the end of 86 or first of 87. So uh, I guess not quite uh, 30 years, but getting close. Let's fast forward to today. How many homes did your team sell so far this year? 250 homes for about 50 million in volume. Now, and our average sales price has gone up. It's right around 200,000. Do you know what the GCI is so far this year? About 1.4 million. Do you recall what your best year was and what your production was that year? I think it was around 2012. We did about 300 homes for about 62 million, and the GCI was about 2.2 million. Well, let's do this at this point, Lyndall. I'd like to talk about your journey, and I'd like to talk about how you built up that team. You had that super slow start. You started to get some training, and you, you built it up into this this very productive team. In fact, when we were going back and forth, you mentioned that you became a mega agent. How do you define what a mega agent is? Yeah, I kind of, you know, as I was thinking about that, I thought, isn't that funny? We do actually kind of use that language, and we kind of just uh, attached mega agent. And to me, may not be correct for everyone, but to me, when someone's volume starts getting to a level that it's it's a lot higher than the industry, I'm going to say something like 10 million, and it's moving up, and they, they now have a, a real estate job that really needs to be turned into a business. It's time they've, they've, get, they've got so much business, they start hiring leverage. Because at some point, um, when your business gets to a certain level, you're, you know, the, the greatest thing any person needs in their real estate business is leverage. And the highest form of leverage is going to be people, but the hardest form of leverage is going to be people. So I would say I've defined a mega agent, anybody who's going 10 million in production and higher. Uh, and of course, today we're seeing the limits just go through the roof. I have a friend that I just did an interview with him the other day, and he, in seven years, he's doing $100 million in volume. And so, you know, Back when we started, the highest producer was doing three or four million. And so I love how we just keep raising the lid. But I would have to say a mega agent definition for me would be someone 10 million or above that really is starting to now start to need to use business practices to handle that business. You mentioned that what happens at that level is you start to, to employ leverage and the, the number one best leverage is people, but it's also the hardest. What could you tell someone who's looking at going down that path and becoming a mega agent? Maybe their production is getting up there or they want to get it there. They're, they're almost there. How do they make that work when they need to bring people in? How do they find the right people? How do they train the right people? What are the characteristics that you look for and leverage with people? Mastering people is something any business owner has to do, and sometimes in the real estate industry, we're, we're, we're kind of conflicted because we say we have a real estate business, but really, if we're having to do it all, we really have a real estate job, and that was a big aha for me years ago in one of my business psychotherapy groups with Dr. Fred that we did early on when he worked with top producers uh, in real estate was we realized, and I had never thought about this, but I realized that the last day I took up my last sign would be my last dollar. And that was very disturbing to me because I thought I had a real estate business since the day I got my license. I walked around and said I had a real estate business and I called it a real estate business. But a business is people making you money. And so if you're going to have a true business and a true asset that you can either turn over to seventh level, which means you turn it over to someone else and they do the day-to-day operations, 
or you sell it as an asset someday, it has to be a business. It has to be something that's not dependent on you. And so you have to start mastering those skills of identifying the difference between talent and non-talent because everyone's talent for something, but they might not be talent for the position you're about to put them in. So this isn't a, a, a label that you give somebody that some people in the world are talent and some people are non-talent. It's just are they talent or non-talent for the position you're trying to put them in. And so I think about my life now, first of all, how big my life is when I was willing to master, and by the way, I'm still mastering it every day, the skill of working with talented people as opposed to continually having it be all about me and centered around me and I get people that wait for me to tell them what to do instead of trying to find people that are self-motivated and, and, and talent, what I would consider talent to do the business with. It just allows it to get so much bigger. But it is a commitment that you have to commit to mastering because in between is kind of frustrating. If you don't really know how to hire people and you keep hiring the wrong people, that's just a lot of frustration. But if you really master learning how to identify talent for each position, that's when, it can, first of all, I always, I always say for your life and your business to be as big as it can possibly be, it will have to be done with and through others. And when you get really good at that, that's when life gets real fun because things get real big and a lot of people can reach their goals and their dreams through your vehicle. And so that's when it gets fun. But the in-between is real hard because you got to master where do I find these people? You know, I think about the time I, I probably spent less than 5% of my time looking for people to put on my team or in business with me. And now 95% of my time is spent doing that because I always have some business or some opportunity. And by the way, if I found talent and I didn't have opportunity, I'd go, I'd go create one for us. So it's a, that's a whole different mindset. It's a whole different set of skills. And some people, quite honestly, just aren't willing to, 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 to take it on and rework themselves in a way that they need to rework so that they learn how to succeed through people. You know, I always have this funny thing I say when I teach that sometimes as drivers, which most of us probably are, we're always mad. We're not sure why we're mad. We're just plum darn mad. And it's because no one ever does it good enough or fast enough or our way. And I remember so vividly that feeling and thinking that way until I learned how to number one, be more patient with people and learn that sometimes leverage through people is going to feel like I'm going backwards, but I'm only going backwards for a little while till I can go forwards. And so, but this has taken years and years of, of spending time and energy on learning how do you recruit and select those people? I mean, do I have a good process? I think about my first hire in real estate. I probably didn't let that person say 10 words. I did all the talking. Well, now my interview process is completely different. It's five or six hours if the person keeps making it through every step, and it's all about them. They do almost 99% of the talking because you can't learn about a person if you're doing the talking. So where do you look? You look everywhere. Once you decide you're going to master success through people, every person you see you're looking at and saying, is there an opportunity for us to do something together? And you look everywhere and uh, you're, you, you learn what to identify, what are the traits to identify of a talented person, what's the language they use, you know, what energy do they have, and those kind of things. And after a while, it's kind of like, I think, I think it was um, Stephen Covey that talked about the conscious incompetent and all that stuff. After a while, you just kind of start doing it naturally because you've done it so much 
that you're looking everywhere and you're assessing and you kind of almost have a mini version of your recruit select process that you can put someone through, you know, standing in a line to see if, if they pass and you want to go farther with them. So I kind of hope that kind of hope uh, answered your question there. But it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a commitment to mastery to succeed through people. You mentioned that you're looking for certain traits in people. What are those traits that you're looking for for the people who are going to be the right people? I'm looking for a language of achievement. These people talk about achievement because it's important to them. I'm looking about a certain energy because it takes a certain energy. Because a lot of times the people I'm looking for are what would be known as like an empire builder. So I'm going to put them in a position where they're going to go build something. You know, when when you think about Brad that took over my team, Brad had to be a builder of something because he he had to be that kind of empire builder that I can put him in there and he can actually make it do better than when I was there. And so uh, that's a different mindset than some, someone who is going to maybe support me you know, I might be looking for in that position. I might again. I'm looking for a good. At, I'm looking for attitude. I'm looking for integrity. I'm looking for learning base. Those are going to be with anybody I'm looking for. But I might be looking for a few little different details depending on what position that they're looking for. But majority of the people I'm looking for, I want to go do a deal with them, and we're going to go build something together. So I'm looking for a language of achievement. I'm looking for past success. If I look in their past. Do they show me because, you know, everything leaves, leaves a trail, success and failure? And do they show me that they, have, they actually succeed at whatever they put their mind to? And I can, I can find that clearly in their past if I know what I'm looking for or know how to look for it or ask the right questions to get that to come out. And so I'm looking for certain things, patterns of success. I'm looking for learning-based integrity. Do, would they match our values? You know, is their personal life in good order? Because I've really learned that you can't expect a person's personal life to be in shambles and their business life to be good. They're usually autobiographical, and so I can't, I'm going to investigate a little bit in that area too so that I make sure that we don't, you know, wind up having a surprise later on. I have to assume that you've been doing this a while and that sometimes you've made a mistake, probably early on more than now, but you've hired the wrong person without using names. Could you tell us what was the problem? What characteristics did the wrong person have or why did it not work out? Well, usually the problem happened because I either didn't have a good process or I had a good process and didn't follow it. So the finger always points back at me, always, because as a leader, it's always, you always got the finger pointing back at you. So I have to always look back and go, okay, what part of the process did I not follow? Because if I this person didn't change and all of a sudden get horrible with me, you know, or do a horrible job with me, there was a pattern or there was something we missed that would have had that show up and, and I wouldn't have made that mistake. Or maybe I, maybe I thought I ignored behaviorally that they don't fit the role and I thought, well, and and it doesn't mean that you that you always that 100% match behaviorally in a role will will necessarily work either because I've had 100% matches that meaning if I did behavioral assessments on them like DISC or ABA or Colby or any of those strength by any of those things out there that you can do to kind of measure does this person wake up every day and naturally have the skills or the traits to do this position I've had a 100% match so if that's true then also someone who's maybe not absolutely 
right on target, the Haverly match for the role. They, there's actually some of those out there that can actually do it. So that's what that's where it gets confusing is if there was this perfect thing I slid them into, and if they fit, then they're the perfect fit. There's this all this other stuff you got to find out, and so you got to have a good process that really digs deep. And wh- I think what's the difference between all the failure failures that I've had on the front end is now I slow down and I take my time, especially the higher level position I'm going to put them in. I want to take my time and I date them a lot longer. I'll try to take them to a learning event and see how they respond to learning and training. I'm just going to slow the process way, way down. But absolutely, you fail your way forward in everything you do. And unfortunately, you can't go to a class and learn how to hire people and come home and still not make mistakes. You only get better at the hiring because you make those mistakes. So, yeah, I've had some doozies. And most of them are my fault, again, because... Either they behaviorally didn't fit the job I tried to get them in or they didn't have high enough aspirations or goals and I didn't check off on that. You know, and I I think we all at some point in our life think we can save people. So we go for somebody that we think, oh, man, under my leadership, they'll do awesome. And, and I stopped doing that also. You know, I'm looking for people that if, hopefully have already got enough clues in there in the position that I'm going to put them in or some position similar that I can match those clues up and say, you know what, they've already shown they can win at this kind of role because they did it over here instead of thinking, oh, you know, I think if I think if I work with them, I can get them, I can get them to be successful. I don't do that anymore. But, you know, so I think you learn from every single one. And I think what honestly got better over time is me spending more time on the front end before I hire them. And then if they're not working out, you know, try to have an easy exit quickly as possible strategy before it drains my energy, the whole team's energy, and their energy also. So hire slow and fire fast. Yeah, and how many times do we have to hear that one until we get it, right? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Now, you, you mentioned that you look for empire builders. I'm sure that there's people out there thinking, especially if they haven't built a team yet, they're thinking, geez, if I bring in an empire builder, what's to prevent them from learning what I know and then immediately going out and doing it on their own? And that is such a great question. You know, I just got off the road from teaching Action Train, Lead and Motivate. And, you know, I I sit with a lot of mega agents in a year. I'm around a lot of people that produce at a high, high level. And You know, I see that a lot. I do because agents almost, I mean, it happened yesterday at lunch. I sat down with a mega agent and she's like, you know, I just think I want to stop hiring people that can, that are like me because they keep leaving. And so there in itself is the issue because what we have to do is we have to understand if you're going to bring on people that are talented enough to do what you do you better be willing to move out of the way and let them have your position or willing to go do another position with them. And that's the piece that most mega agents don't get. They they think people are going to join their team and talent only leaves you when they think there's no more opportunity. So if they if you know if I had brought Brad onto my team and hadn't been willing to move over and let him take over my spot, at some point I'm going to have to you know have my come to realization meeting with Brad because he says, where am I going to go? I mean, I can do what you do. And so this, you know, this is what I think gets a lot of top agents into trouble because they then they start saying, well, I don't want people like that. Well, yes, you do, because that's how you build big organizations. 
you know, Brad's built this thing way bigger. You know, I'm doing a couple hundred transactions when Brad takes over. You know, he's got had it as high as 300 transactions. But I had to be willing to either step out of the way for that opportunity or take Brad and go do another opportunity with him. And that's, that's the piece that people miss. But if you really study talented people, most big organizations got built because there was more talented people on the team than just the main person. But they had to have opportunity to stay. And so most mega agents haven't thought about how do I make my life big enough that someone else with big goals can meet their goals inside my opportunity. And that's what gets most of us in a trap. And so that took a lot of coaching from Gary Keller for me to get and understand. But when I got it and I understood it, wow, how cool. I mean, my life is so much bigger than I ever dreamed possible when I first started, you know, just to try to be the top in real estate to sell more houses than anybody. It's just so much bigger now. But it had that it it, it it had to take that kind of thinking to understand that I gotta keep finding more opportunity or being willing to let people in with big goals and big dreams. But if a person gets in your life with a big goal and a big dream and they look up and go, My goals are bigger than yours, you're gonna lose them. <laughs> so I think that's the piece that most people get and then when when someone and then by the way, we've lost people from our team but what we do is try to stay in relationship. Most of the ones we've lost from our team, we still coach or consult because I believe the world's big enough for all of us. I don't think someone else has to lose for me to win. And I just want to examine myself and say, you know, if I lost that person and I didn't want to, what could I have done differently? And uh, the good news is we own the market center that they went into. So because of Kelly's profit share, we still get rewarded because they're in a market center that we own. We still get rewarded. But, um, you know, you're going to lose some. And to think that you're going to hire and never lose anybody, that sets you up for false expectations. And that's another reason why I see people want to quit trying to bring on team members and talented people because they go, well, it's just going to, it's just like a revolving door. Well, if it's a revolving door, you got to figure out where's the value gap so that you can stop the revolving door. And then it's kind of like real estate. I think what's the number that get into real estate, get out 30 or 35%. I can't remember the number, but you're going to have a certain number like that of turnover, every business, you know, I had a business coach tell me one time, when you're in the business of owning business, you'll always be hiring, you'll always be training. And I hated both <laughs> at the time. But if you're going to be a business owner, you're always going to be hiring, you're always going to be training. So get over it. You know, what do you want? <laughs> you know, I want to be a business owner. I want a big life. I want to build wealth. Well, businesses are one of the ways to do that. So get in there and master those skills and understand you know, you're never going to have 100% of your people stay. It's just not possible. And you don't want to because sometimes you made a bad hire and you're like, please, let's hurry and turn over. You know, I messed up on this one. I need another chance. Well, it sounds like these talented people, they drive you to open and expand your vision of what can be. And if you don't expand with them, then then they're going to fall out. The other thing is you said sometimes you have to cut the cord. You have to say this is not working out. I assume that's very challenging. How do you go about letting go of somebody that's not working out? Well, it is. It is real hard. And, you know, it is for me because I feel responsible. If I went through the process and I let someone be on the team or part of our organization and I made a mistake, I feel bad. I I feel the weight of their family and their life. And so... What I've found is the better relationship you have with someone, the easier that's going to be because I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to try to, because it, you know, and I had my daughter say this to me one time, mom, how, 
it has to be hard. How do you, how do you fire people? That has to be so hard. And I said, well, let me ask, because my daughter understands about behavior because she's taken the disc. And this, this was when she was much younger. But even at that time, she understood behaviors because we've always used the disc. And anything we learn, we try to go home and teach our kids because we think part of the value is of everything we've learned is to try to give it to them a lot sooner than we got it. And so she understood about the disc and probably had taken it. And so I said, well, Bailey, let me ask you a question. If 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 we had to let someone go, if it, if they're not working out, what do you think the problem really is? And she said, well, maybe they're not behaviorally matched for wherever you have them. Exactly. So if they're not behaviorally matched and they're not succeeding at a high level, do you think they're happy? She said, well, no, probably not. I said, so you've got to see it as something you're doing for someone, not to someone. And so I'm going to do my best to either replace them somewhere else or help them, you know, think about where would be a good fit. And that's what I've found is if you're in good relationship with people, that's a lot easier and sometimes an actual relief to them. No one wants to sit in a job and not do it well. I find the better, the, the tighter the relationship, the easier that is to do. You mentioned the DISC personality test several times. How do you score out on the DISC? I'm all D and nothing else on the DISC. <laughs> on the DISC alone, the only thing above the midline for me is the D. And it's pretty wow. high. <laughs> that funny? Yeah. And so uh, now in the AVA, it, you know, I've got mid-level sociability. No, actually a little bit below mid-level but very lower, lower on the social, a much more of a thinker and driver and high sense of urgency, that type of stuff. So I've really had to work. I've really had to work on, on my style and what I say when I talk to people because if I went with what's natural for my behavior, I'd be in a lot of messes. So I've learned to really think because a lot of times, uh, you know, you're triggered uh, you know, your behavior, you kind of are triggered by whatever your fear is. Well, driver's biggest fear is being taken advantage of. So that, man, that just sends my radar straight through the roof immediately. So I've had to learn to say it's probably not like that. So what is it? And, you know, that's, I don't want to do what my first reaction is. I want to think about it and give a, a better response. And so, you know, all of us have to modify who we are a little bit, especially when we start dealing with people. You know, some people are going to be, we talked about this uh, when I was teaching up in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina yesterday. Some people are going to be, you know, like a hammer and they're just going to hammer everybody. And some people are going to be too soft as a leader. And you can't be either one. you got to be, you know, you got to be what's, what, you know, what you need to be and what's appropriate. And so it, I, that's why I said it's really a commitment to mastery uh, succeeding through people, but it's so worth it in the long run. I, I am so thankful that, you know, and I, I've said I've had wonderful, great mentors and you and I talked about one of them being Howard and and we talked about Dr. Fred a little bit, but I'm so grateful for my mentors and coaches and Gary Keller being one of them that taught me uh, success through others because uh, no one succeeds alone, you know, and we tend to be a an industry of lone rangers because we can do so much ourselves, but I'm so thankful that I was willing to take that on and kind of rewire myself in such a way to, you know, and again, I'm always working on it. It's always a work in progress. But uh, I'm so thankful because my life is just so much bigger and richer because of it. But I, you know, it is, I know how difficult it is for anybody out there, whether they're hiring their first assistant or they're trying to put a whole team together or they're trying to figure out how do I turn this thing I have over to someone. It, it's, it's not easy. I think that's why after all these years, not a lot more people have actually gone to seventh level than have because it's hard. 
we're going to talk a little bit more about that turnover in a minute. For the team building part, if there's an agent out there listening right now and they're hitting a, a maximum level of production that they can do on their own, typically I see around 30, 40, 50 closings a year. They're just, they've hit a wall or a ceiling in this case. They've hit a ceiling. They can't get beyond it. They know they have to bring somebody in. Who do you recommend that they bring in? Well, I always think your first hire needs to be administrative. And I kind of use this little lever, and this is what I teach when I'm teaching a class. I say, okay, think about your life kind of like a little seesaw. When your quality of life gets out of balance and you're spending, you know, 9, 10 o'clock at night on the computer or at the office on the computer doing detailed stuff, that is your sign you've got to get some administrative help. And then all of a sudden when you're, you've got you know, so many leads falling in the trash can. And a lot of times it's going to take two administrative people before you get to this other one. But I always say it's one administrative person, then the second administrative person, then you start adding buyer agents. And what I see a lot of people do is they want to add buyer agents because they think that's free business to them. And it's just a big mistake. It typically doesn't work out. You've got to get that administrative support first so that you can get your life back and do the dollar productive things that really matter because your time's better spent on three, four, five hundred dollar an hour stuff rather than it is on fifteen, twenty dollar an hour stuff. When should an agent bring in their first administrative assistant? I threw out some numbers, but I, I shouldn't have tainted the water. When do you think that someone should hire their first administrative assistant? Well, I use it by number of listings because I think number of listings are the are the the one thing that matter in an agent's business. Because if they're good at getting the listings, everything else will take care of itself. And so I've kind of always used it. And everybody's capacity is different, but I do get people ask me that a lot. Uh, You know, and I would say when you're maintaining 15 listings or so, you've got a good solid start on a business and you've probably got the lead generation part figured out. So everybody's going to be different. I think it also depends on your average sales price. You know, our average sales price back long ago was I mean, we've come so far. When I first started, it was $60,000. I had to do a lot of units. Well, I'm going to run out of capacity and time a lot quicker than someone whose average sales price might be two hundred or 300000 Does that make sense? Sure. So I, I always say by number of listings, and I'm going to say by the time you're maintaining, you know, 15 listings, but, but you know what? Someone asked me the other day, hey, if you had to do over again, when, when would you hire your first assistant? I said, you know what? Before my real estate license came back in the mail, they'd be sitting at that desk and open that envelope. That's how, <laughs> that's how quickly I do it today, because I, you know, I'm gonna, I think we've got a much better business mindset in the industry today. That's how someone like my friend Lars can go from in seven years zero to a hundred million. That's a lot of business, and you know what? He just came in with the mindset to set it up like a business, and you know, we have more examples. Now, you know, back when I hired my first assistant, no one in my community had ever hired an assistant. You would not believe the grief that I had to go through of people not wanting to talk to my assistant and, and what are you doing and we're turning you into Trek and, you know, because you've got to be doing something wrong, you know. But I was going to California and watching people on panels say they hired an assistant. I'm like, well, that's a good idea, you know. And so I think we have a better opportunity now people coming in have more of a mindset and, and great books like the millionaire real estate agent help with that and, and other great examples of people doing it. So I, I would say by number of listings and everybody's capacity is going to be different, but if you're starting to maintain about 15, 10, 15 listings, you, you probably better be thinking very seriously about adding some administrative help. 
We've been talking about the seventh level. Let's go back to that for a minute. And again, please define for us, what is the seventh level? Back years ago, the way this actually got defined was we had a small, very small mastermind group that we all did with, with Gary Keller. And it actually even started before this. We would, we would all try to get together at Howard's or different places. And we would sit down and we would try to say, well, you know, I'm spending this on advertising. What are you spending? And we would try to compare notes with each other. And we got certain things about, okay, when to hire an assistant and what to pay them. But what we, we couldn't figure out is the money piece of it because all of us use different chart of accounts, if you will. And so when we first met Gary and we were in a mastermind and we invited some of our dear friends to be a part of it, he got to watching and realizing everybody in that group had a certain pattern about them already. So by the time we met Gary, we were already at level five, but no one had ever identified to us that was that was level five. So what that means is we had several assistants, we had you know, three or four buyer agents, that was level five. And so Gary went ahead and, and as he started studying everybody, he started seeing the patterns that everyone had. And that's how he wrote the Millionaire Real Estate Agent book originally was just looking at everybody in those groups and seeing what, what, we, what was the pattern we actually all had. And so level one would be where you do this business by yourself and no right or wrong on any level, just reality. Level one is you're doing it by yourself. Level two is you, you've maxed yourself out and you've hired your first assistant Level three, you have two assistants, and then level four, you're now starting to add salespeople along with that. And then five and six are just more of that. Six, you probably bring in the person that's going to start taking over. I skipped six. I went from five to seven because I started coaching with Gary, and uh, like I said, I was already at level five, and, and but I was fried and burnt, and I'd been doing it for about 12 years. And to be honest with you, I was thinking, I'm not, I'm not even sure why I'm doing this anymore. I'm not challenged. It felt like kind of, I don't like things when they're really mundane. I like them when they're real hard and nobody's done it yet. And I didn't know that at the time, but that's really what I was searching for is I like creating and building something new. And the newness had kind of, it was now it's kind of day-to-day, you know, same thing. I might go on eight listing appointments in a day and the only thing that would change is the color of their carpet and just kind of wasn't fulfilling. And I didn't know why I was kind of even angry at myself that I could be, you know, looking to think to do something else because I'd worked so hard to to build that. And plus, where's my money going to come from, right? I'm making quite a bit of money at that time. And so that's when Gary said, well, I'm working on a concept called seventh level. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's a concept where I help you identify the, the kind of person it would take to step into your business and they could take over your day-to-day operations. And because by this time, we'd already figured out our big problem was we had no passive money coming in. All of our money was actively dependent on whether I sold real estate or not. And so I, I'd already been pointed out by a, real estate, a, a business coach, you've got a problem. And your problem is the last day you take up your last sign is your last dollar. So I knew I needed to fix that. And what Gary came to me with was the solution because I'd already studied Kiyosaki to know that the only way to build wealth is real estate, stocks, or businesses. And we don't like stocks. We stink at them. So I said, okay, so let's do real estate investing. And then now Gary's coming to me going, let me share with you how your real estate practice can actually become a business. And so I'm hearing this and I've already got this foundation in my mind that it's a whole and I got to do something about it. Otherwise, I don't think I would have been as open. I would have been scared to death to turn this valuable thing that I had, you know, that was providing my family income 
over, you know, because honestly, it's pretty scary to do that. No one had done that. No one had, you know, hiring your first assistant's real scary, but so is turning your whole business over to someone else. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, what if he runs it in the ground? You know, what if, you know, what if I have to come back and put it all back together? I mean, I had all these horrifying thoughts of what might happen, but I believed Gary. I believed in him. I believe he's a brilliant, brilliant man. He's changed our industry and I'll forever be grateful. I believed in what Dr. Fred had pointed out to me, that I did have big problems. As successful as I was in real estate, the problem was none of my money was passive. It really depended on me to get up every day and go do it. And the other problem I had was not not enough freedoms. I wanted more freedoms. You know, my life was going to be the best it was going to be, and that was getting a little bit of time off on Saturday and maybe on Sunday. But that was about as good as it was going to get, uh, or I saw it was going to get at the time. So that's why I was open to that seventh level. And seventh level just means you bring somebody in, and they start doing the day-to-day operations. And uh, But what I always tell people is you've got to have a bigger, brighter future of what you're going to, or it's going to be too hard to let go. And so for me, my bigger, brighter future was I was going to buy more real estate, and I was going to own more businesses that were real estate-related and this was going to free up my time to have time to do that. Because what I learned is I love starting the businesses and getting them up to a certain level, but I don't always love it when it kind of gets to be mundane and feel like the same old thing and not as challenging anymore. I think you may have just hit on the point of why we don't see a lot of true seventh level businesses. And that is that the person running the seventh level business, the team leader doesn't see that future of where they're going to fit, where they're going to go, what the vision is going to be after they replace themselves. They don't want to just sit around on the couch. You know, they, they want to have somewhere else that they're going to go. I think that you've identified the, the key factor for why most people stop at six and don't go to seven. Yeah, I agree because um, our identity is tied up in that. Our value is tied up in that. And you know, I always say when the pain of staying where you are is great enough, you'll let go. And so the only way you're going to cause that to happen is have a bigger, brighter future that you're moving to. And, you know, what I had to in front of me was I could see someone like Gary Keller. I could see his life. And, and I think we've all been really good modelers. I think that's what Howard Britton taught us to be, to go and find people and model our businesses and our lives after them. And so... You know, when I woke up and realized that most of the people that I had been chasing for years in a real estate business, when I really looked at their life, I didn't want it. Or they were falling off the other side of a cliff, and I'd say, hey, you know, where's Vince going? They're like, Vince, man, he quit this business and went and got a real job or, you know, went to school to be a doctor. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Wait a minute. You know, I'm chasing these guys. You're telling me on the other side of where I'm going is like this big cliff, (laughs) you know? And I've never thought about that because I just really thought, you know, 300 deals is the answer, 500 deals is the answer, 1,000 deals would be the answer. And it just went, wait a minute, I don't want that. Why am I even going that direction? And so if you can paint a big, and for me, it's, I, I realized at 18 when my stomach started hurting on Sundays, freedom is a huge thing to me. I love freedom and I love options. And anytime my life gets in a place where I feel like I'm backed in a corner where there aren't options or there aren't freedoms, I start figuring out solutions. And that's what happened in real estate is I realized there are not a lot of options if I continue to do this business the way everyone else has been doing it. And, I, and you know, 
I think now we're starting to see things like Gary's introducing expansion and how you a business can actually. And back early on, he was talking to us about how to franchise our our business, and we couldn't quite get. You know, we would brainstorm and mastermind about that. And we couldn't quite get the dynamics worked out about that because it was so. I guess so many legal issues and so so much harder to do a franchise. But I think he's on it now when he's talking to agents about expansion. And I'm thankful that I had a business coach a few years ago that had, didn't sell real estate at all that said to me, Linda, you need to go trademark your name. And I thought, you know, he's crazy. But I did it because I do what my coaches tell me to do, trademark my name. And I'm so thankful because, you know, we actually look up and say, you know what, may, maybe expansion is what we're – if I find the right talent, maybe we go do expansion in other locations. And I think that's a better answer than what Gary was onto, which was franchising. But again, I think we're going to be back to the same issue. People are going to have to master people. Agents are going to have to learn how to master success through people because you can't go do another location without learning how to find a person talented enough to go do that spot. And so I'd love to see more people go to seventh level. Definitely love to see them set their businesses up like an asset so they could either go to seventh level or sell it because I think that's also kind of the future of where we might be going is buying these books of business from each other. Or expansion, where you just say, I'm I'm capped out in this location. I'm going to go, you know, 30, 40 minutes from my location and, and start another team, I mean, another location, an expansion team. You're giving us that big vision. Let's let's step back one, one step and, and talk about moving to that seventh level. You said you went from level five to level seven. From the time that you decided you wanted to go to level seven to the time it was in place and you no longer had to work day to day in the business, how long did that take? About eight months. What happened is uh, once I I got my arms around the concept and made the commitment to do it, which, you know, was a scary commitment, then I went to Austin with Gary and he walked us, we we said when he described, he, he actually had the candidate described before we ever even knew a candidate, but when he read those descriptors to me he said things like they probably would have a corporate background they'll probably be about this age you know they'll probably have had some kind of these kind of successes in their background I mean, he gave us enough general stuff that I said gosh that sounds like Brad but gosh Brad's only been doing this business part-time for six months I mean that's scary to think you're going to turn your practice over that you've been working your rear end off for 12 years to somebody who's been doing it six months but everything else all the other descriptors match so so he said, well, bring him to Austin. I'll put him through the process and help you discover if he's the right one. And so once we made that decision, then I worked with him for about eight months. He shadowed me because really the only thing left on my team at that time that, that someone else didn't already do was listings. I mean, I already had not gone out with buyers in years. So I'd already turned over all of those things. I already had administrative people. Really, the only thing left was taking a couple hundred listings a year and so what I needed in leading the team. So what I needed him to do was step in and do that and lead the team. And so he had past history of leading sales teams. He just didn't know how to take listings. I mean, he actually had 10 part-time, so he's pretty good at it. But that was with us coaching him on the weekends. We'd already been coaching him some. So it took about eight months, and then I pretty much fully stepped out of going on any listings or whatever, and he went on all the rest of them. And then for the next uh, about... 17 years, Jim, I started getting on a plane to go build a region for Keller Williams Realty, so I wasn't going to be there. So Jim stepped into the role, my husband, of coaching him one and about an hour, hour and a half a week on, you know, what were the goals, what were the standards, you know, number of listings you have to get. Gary kind of helped us 
you know, learned what we needed to hold him accountable for so that we could kind of keep our eye on that business and make sure it wasn't falling down or anything. And so we just started focusing on the number of listings he was taking. And then that freed me up to go build a region for Keller Williams. And then plus we opened a couple of Keller Williams franchises. So that freed us up to have time to do that also. But about eight months now, I will tell you, we have a, a, a top agent from our area that we brought into our organization to run one of our offices. And she was doing about 85 transactions a year by herself, had never even hired an assistant. And in about 90 days, we helped her go from not even level one, I guess level one, because she was working by herself, to level seven. And that team still runs today and brings her in about 150000 a year passively to her. So I think people can do it whenever they decide to do it and they've got enough business, you know, because if you think about it, you could, if you're making 100000 you could decide tomorrow to give away fifty, and then a percentage of everything they grow it to from there, and you could have a $50,000 a year business. I know a lot of people that would love to have a $50,000 a year business. And if you make 200000 and you gave them fifty or sixty, you know, you could have a $150,000 a year business. That's a good business. That's about what any good franchise might make somebody, 150 to 200000 So when we kind of start thinking about it like that, man, this, that changes the whole dynamics of what we have the opportunity to do in this business. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. To be clear, so you moved yourself out of the day-to-day in about eight months, so someone else was taking over the listings and took over leadership. However, you still have involvement in the business. You said, what, about an hour to two hours a week to make sure that your leader is staying on track. Do you still do that now? You, and By the way, let's clarify. You mentioned Jim a couple times. Who's Jim? Jim is my husband who, um, after I got in in the late 80s, uh, at about 19, I think it was 1993, his businesses were, we got all of our $600,000 in debt paid back because at the time, you, you know, the bankers would come to you and say, we'll take 40 cents on a dollar if you can scrape up the cash. And so he, his restaurants and nightclubs were still kind of hanging on a little bit. And I was starting to do really a lot better in real estate. So we decided we would both be better off if we got into real estate. So he got in with me at about 19, I think about 1992 or 1993. I can't remember exactly and joined my team. He started working with buyers. I took all the listings. He got into the real estate business with me at that time, and we do everything. I mean, we don't do the same things. Like, there's there's times that, you know, I, I would go to build a region for Keller Williams, and because we had smaller kids, he stayed home, and he built our real estate investments. And so we've, we've always worked together in real estate business. We just do, you know, different things. We have different strengths, so we do different things in the business. You mentioned that for the team, you still have some weekly involvement. Is that true that either you or Jim is in touch with the team leader about one hour a week? Last year, the dynamics of that has started to change just a little bit. One of the things that we learned from Gary is when you have a talented person, you will do one of two things. Uh, You will let them either, you know, earn the right to buy into the business that they've grown or you go do another opportunity with them. And and one of the things we did with Brad along the years was we saw that he didn't have any wealth built at all. So we had been buying investment properties for quite some time now with Brad and and still do. 
But about, I want to say a little over a year ago, we made the decision that really, after 17 years of the business really being ours and paying us money, and but allowing us to have our life to go build some other businesses that, quite honestly, way far exceed anything we were making in real estate, we decided that really we either needed to do another opportunity with Brad and have him bring up his son or someone up, up the ladder to replace him and us go do something else with him. But his desire really was just to keep doing the team. So we made an agreement that what we would do is over the next 10 years, we uh, would allow him to pay us residual money. And then at the end of that 10th year, he'll actually own it free and clear. But part of that negotiation was you're on your own on this business. And we have stop gaps that the business can't drop below or we can go back in and buy the business. And we actually only sold him two counties. So we still have any other location that we would want to do as the McKissick Group. But it, over over the next, I guess it's probably be nine years now, he will continue to continually pay us that residual stream. But at the end of the 10th year, it'll be fully his. And part of that agreement is you're on, we're, no, we're no longer going to coach the team. It's up to you. You, you. you make the decisions and you you're accountable for what you get the business to, but it can't drop below a certain level of production and certain things like that. Does that make sense? Sure. Sure. Of course, now he has been trained by you for, you said, 17 years. So he's an expert. Uh, he, he knows the business backwards and forwards at this point. He does. He does. And he, Brad was one of those that when he walked in, he, he owned it from day one. He, his heart and soul's in it. His wife works on the team. She was our marketing director forever and still is. He's got one of his sons that's on the team. And he literally, I mean, you just saw over the years, Brad owned it more and more and more. And, you know, this is something we've seen Gary do with some of his businesses, that the person that really grows it and builds it after a certain amount of time or when they've hit certain accomplishments, that is a business that he just sells out to them. And we kind of followed that model. There's two models. One, let's go do another deal together. And that's going to fit some people. We've got to key person in our life right now that that's the deal we're doing with her because that's who she is. She likes building new deals. And so I think each of your, you know, you know, your wealth determiners or your talent that you bring on board, you're going to have to kind of play your way and feel your way through what is the best way, you know, and Brad had really earned the right to do that. And again, we had gone out and created, you know, just a lot of big opportunities to replace that income. And so it just made, it made, it felt like the right thing to do and the right way to do it with Brad. Let's talk about that. So you, you've come to the point that you've decided to sell the team. You've mentioned that it's going to be a payout over 10 years. It's a, an installment sell. There's a residual income part. Can you give us some more information about what those terms are? How did you structure the terms of the sell? Are you going to receive a, a referral fee or a, a percentage of the revenues over a certain period of time? Or is it a fixed amount? How did you structure it? We took a large amount down. We did it. We purchased. We structured it, uh, it, and of course, it changed once we were doing the kind of the sale. So we took a large equity in some properties that we had bought with Brad. So we took equity in those as a down payment, kind of as a you got a, you got you got some skin in the game, and then just a flat fee over the next ten years with stop gaps of certain things about the business that have to stay intact. So that if we had to, or we weren't, you know, they, he weren't, he wasn't meeting those criteria, we could go back in and take over that asset again. Does that make sense? 
Sure, sure. So there was a down payment. It was in the form of equity and properties you co-owned. Then you're going to receive a flat fee each year for 10 years. Is that paid out annually or monthly? Monthly, each month. And is it a, it's a flat amount, right, each month? Flat amount each month. That way it's not tied to, you know, whatever. It's just a flat amount. And then into that 10th year, if everything's been met and we've kept all the criteria, then that asset in that location turns over to him, but only for that location because we trademarked that name and we didn't sell every location to him. Does that make for sense? And I'm so counties. thankful now because we weren't even talking about expansion at the time. But with expansion, kind of being in the thought process like, wow, boy, I'm glad we did that. You mentioned stopgap. So how far down can the business go before you can take it back over? Is it 50% of the production at the time that you established the sale or, or what kind of stopgap? I think it's about 20 million, if I remember correctly, 20 million in production. It can't go less than 20. And if that were to occur, just to play this out, how somebody would write up their agreement or some of the concepts, at least, if it went below 20 million in production, what happens next? We go back in and pay him what he's paid us so far and take back over the business. And take it back over and resell it or, or renegotiate or do something. Now, in order to, to put that together, I assume you had to value the, the team, value this business. How did you do that? The, the rule of thumb typically on uh, businesses are three to four times the net earnings. Sometimes you can take two or three years and average those together to get, up, get that number. And I was the one emotionally tied to the business. <laughs> so it was a little bit harder for me than it was for Jim. Jim's like, let this sucker go. You know, it's okay. And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, and, it, and, and it's rightly so because I'm emotionally tied. I built this thing early on and I've got all the blood, sweat, and tears. And, you know, now I'm letting go completely. But uh, it was a little harder for me. So I think there's probably a little plug in there for my emotion. But normally you're going to take three to four times earning of a business. And that's going to help you kind of figure out a value, I think. That's what I do if I'm going to buy into a market center or sell a market center. So a, a business is a business, right? Sure. No, thank you very much for, for letting us know how you went about the valuation. And that is how you typically value an income stream of a business. That's great. You took the income approach. The down payment, what kind of percentage of that number that you came up? What percentage of the value did you end up with for the down payment? Was it 10%, 20%? You know, I don't know that we had a formula for that. We probably should have, uh, but uh, I just came up with a number. I just came up with a number, and I don't know if we, we did it based on because of we, we knew which properties it would be easier to do that with. Uh, to be honest with you, I, you know, I, don't even, I think we pulled that one out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, you already had this prior arrangement because of your concept of expanding opportunities. But for someone listening and trying to try to put their finger on it, could you estimate for us real quick? Was do you think it was ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty percent of the total price that was down the down payment? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, yeah, it'd be probably closer to fifty percent. Yeah, that's a big down. So fifty percent cash, that's pretty good. And then the the payment, the monthly payment over ten years, is it the same amount every month for ten years, or does it go up or down? Yep. Same amount. Very good. So it's a flat amount. All, boy, how many payments is that? Uh, 120 payments. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, the, the beautiful thing about these is you can do it whatever way. You have to know the, I believe when I'm talking to people about, you know, maybe turning their business over to someone else, you've got to figure out what's important for each party. 
And so I think, and I think this is a great way for people to build their business, to go out and look for people that are ready to not do the business anymore or get out of the business and structure some kind of deal. And so I think everybody's going to have to, you know, my friend Tony DeSello was probably one of the first people that ever sold his business. You know, we didn't have any any kind of criteria or whatever, and we still don't have a lot of it. We don't have a lot of people selling their book of business. I think that'll change. I think we'll have more and more. Sometimes when I try to talk people through when they're saying, I, you know, I need to figure out what, how could I do this? I've got somebody I'd like for to take over my business, but what do I do? It Well, it really depends on what is the person that's selling trying to accomplish. You know, we didn't need any of the money from the McKissick group at this point. We just, we didn't need it. We'd gone out and built other things that were bringing us a lot more money, which we didn't know that was going to happen when we first started doing this, but that's actually what ultimately happened. So it's going to be different for us than it might be for someone who's going to need to live off that money. Does that make sense? Sure. Sure. I think you did a nice job structuring it. I, also, the, the idea of how to value it. I know a lot of agents ask about that. And you took this three to four times net earnings. You're going to get a higher multiple there for your net earnings based on the fact that this business has been running for a long time. It's got very consistent cash flows. So the buyer of your business knows that it's highly likely that that income stream is going to continue. And therefore, you can ask for a higher multiple. I assume if somebody had just been running a team for a year or two, that multiple is going to be much, much lower. Yeah. And, and you know, and Brad is being the buyer, he's been running it. So he knows what he can have it do. Does that make sense? I mean, he's got a lot more from him doing it because both ways, because he's been doing it for long enough now. He's now he's buying into his own security. Whereas somebody, when they're out looking to buy someone's business, they're kind of afraid. What do they not see? <laughs> you know. And Brad, what there was no there wasn't anything for Brad to be afraid of because whatever it was, he'd actually gotten it there at that point. We'd gotten it to a certain level, and he got it the rest of the way. So there's a little more security when that person comes in and has been running the team for them uh, in both ways. There's more security for us as a seller. So whereas somebody else that might be doing this, they don't really have a relationship with that person or maybe that person hasn't been on their team. There's a lot more what ifs that could be in the scenario. Now, you've talked to a lot of folks over the years who have sold their business or moved along those lines. You said there's a lot of different arrangements Question I have is, is it typically sold to someone who's already in the business or on the team, or do you ever see it where someone from the outside purchases the business? I've seen some from the outside, but I think more and more it's people from the inside, you know, someone that they has been with them for a while. It gives them both more confidence. And, and again, let me, let me correct this. I don't see a lot of people doing any of it, but I think we will be moving more of that direction as people see it possible and they start understanding that they actually have an asset if they treat it correctly and, and, you know, keep the database and get repeat and referral business. And, you know, lots of things, if they run their business correctly, they could actually have an asset, which is going to be nice, right? We have had people do this business, you know, I've seen people do this for 30 years and have absolutely nothing to show for it when they finish, which just makes me nauseated to think about that. And so I think we'll see more and more of it. But I've seen both. Uh, I think there's some smart agents out there that are now starting to look for people that have been in the business long enough that they're starting to think about what do I do when I don't do this or how do I not do this? So I see both. Let's go back to the point that you put someone in position of running the company so that you could step back into the seventh level. 
you mentioned that you have to think of the fact that there's an income stream and that amount that's coming out each year and that you're going to take less than that. You're going to take some of that money and hand it over to someone else to run the company. And I assume that's probably one of the hangups for people is figuring out, geez, I'm not going to earn that money anymore. I was earning 200,000 and now I got to give somebody some portion of it, 50 or a hundred thousand dollars to run this business. How did you get over that fear? When you first brought you first brought your person in to run the business, yeah, and we probably went backwards about a hundred thousand the first year, because you know I was the one used to doing it. Now we're going to pay someone else to do it. But you know you can the good news is you can structure these things in such a way that their bigger upside is what they grow the business to, and you don't have a lot of risk in that. What I had risk for and skin in the game for was Brad. Brad came from the corporate world, so I had to start with a salary. So I think it was like 60 grand we started with because that's the, we were like, what's the least you can do? Because <laughs> this is new to us too. What's the least you can do? And we'll figure out how to make this thing together. So he, you know, he said, okay, I can do 60, but I got to have 60 at least. So he did 60 and then we put his upside. Uh, we figured out kind of where the business was currently and we were incorporated already. So we had a lot of things come out like our cars and our, we had a, we had a small, salary that we got. So all those things were kind of already in the business. So we said, okay, we figured out what all that kind of added up to and said, okay, so what we're going to do is start paying you a percentage of anything above this that the business goes to. So that takes, if I'm doing that rather than a big fat salary, I got less risk, but I still got risk. And so that's why you have to have a bigger, brighter future that you're moving to. Otherwise, you're just giving away money. And I said, you know, your choices are go lay on the beach in Tahiti and sound bad some days. But really, the way this works and why you want to do this is so that you can go do other things to build more passive income and more wealth and that kind of stuff. So that's why I say you really have to have that bigger, brighter future as a reason because, you know, you could have to take some steps back and that is going to, that's going to prevent some people from doing it. But you might go back, have to go backwards, you might not, but you've got to be prepared. And so that's why I say don't, don't live, you know, so far above your means that you don't have any room because that's that makes you not have options and we want options. At the time that you brought Brad in to run the business and you were going to step out, the source of the business that you were generating at that time, how much of it was based on you personally, your, your past clients and sphere of influence? Pretty much majority of it. The one thing we had done really well, and I, and I credit Howard Britton for this because I remember the day he was standing in the hallway of one of his events and he looked at me and he said, Linda, you will know that you've done a good job of building a name and a brand when you go into your local grocery store and someone doesn't ask you about Kiwi, they ask you about real estate. And that just always stuck in my mind. And so, you know, we started early on building our business marketing based with prospecting referral enhanced. And as time went on, we got more and more referrals and that name recognition, I think, helped do that. Uh, I laugh and tell this funny story about when my daughter graduated from Baylor, we decided to go to Hawaii. And so we were stepping, we were all about to check in at the Grand Wallia at the spa that day. And I, I said to the lady, hi, we're the McKissicks and we're here for our spa day. And she literally looked at me. She put her pen down and she said, McKissick, McKissick real estate. And I thought, oh my God, how would we be so proud? I mean, this is not even my local grocery store. I'm in Hawaii and they know what I do. 
but it's just kind of a funny story because that stuck with me when he told me that. And so we went out and we built a brand that in Denton, Texas, if you think, thought about real estate, you know, and we'd be one of the top two names that would come up, if not the top name that would come up. And so I think that helped a lot to be able to have a business because one day when I was frustrated about something, Gary said to me, he said, what's your standard for Brad? And I said, what do you mean? What's my standard? I don't even have a clue. What do you mean standard? I don't even know what that means. You know? And he said, well, what's the number of listings Brad has to take for you to feel okay? Cause I think I was complaining about the way he was doing something and you know, the style instead of the results. And I said, you know, cause Brad's high eye and I'm lower, lower. So he's high sociability. I'm lower sociability. So style is going to be completely different on how we do things. And so he said, do you, want, do you want Brad to have the job or do you want to have it? And I said, well, I kind of just wanted him to do it my way. And he said, that's not my question. Do you want that job or do you want him to have it? And I said, oh, well, if you put it like that, of course I want him to have it. He said, then measure the results and don't worry about how he gets there. You've already checked his path to know that he succeeds and he wins. So don't worry about that he doesn't do it your way. Just worry about does he get it done and what's that number so that's when he said, what's his standard? I said, I don't have a standard. I don't even know how to make one. And he said, well, how many listings do you think you were taking before Brad came on board? And I said, about 18. He said, okay, then the standard for Brad is 18. Can we agree that as long as Brad averages 18 listings a month, you'll go sit down somewhere and not worry about how he's doing it? So that would be great. And that was a great freeing moment for me because I didn't know how to measure whether he's doing good or not doing good. And so that would lead you to be critical always because I'm critical of myself that I don't do enough. And so that was really a good freeing moment for me because I thought, wow, I've never really thought about that. What was my business doing before he got here? Because I'm hiring him to grow it. I'm not, you know, and so that, and we never had to worry, you know, there were months Brad took 30 something listings. We never had to worry about Brad not hitting that standard and so that freed me up to go okay the business is going to be okay it's going to be okay you mentioned at that time the majority of your business is is built up and it's coming in by repeating referrals and i have to assume a lot of sixth level team leaders are looking at that thinking geez if everyone wants to talk to me and if i'm the driver here of this business how am i going to step out you were able to do that and able to transition it over to brad How did you do that so that the public comes in and starts asking for Brad instead of you? Of course, we had been the McKissick group for a long time, so that the name insinuates it's not, you know, one person. So that helps. The other thing what I really learned is that was really me thinking more of myself (laughs) than I should because the truth is people want their needs met. And what they like is the standard you've done it. And so if they believe that the people you put in place will deliver that same standard, all they care about is their own needs and how they're going to get them met. And so it wasn't as big a deal as I had dreamed it up to be as it would be. And I think it's all in how you present it. And so Brad became immediately my listing partner. He was not my, you know, assistant or junior or anything. He was my listing partner. And so when the calls came in, and let me tell you my aha moment that came when I realized that this would work. I answered the phone one day because everybody in the office was extremely busy. I said, you know, it's a great day at the McKissick Group. How may I help you? And they said, you know, we'd like to talk to someone about putting our home on the market. And, you know, I looked up and everybody's still on the phone. I'm like, crap, somebody get off, you know. And everybody's still on the phone. So I'm like, okay, hang on one second. So I grabbed the paperwork and start filling out all the questions and everything. And at the end of the call, they said, and who will be coming out? And I went, wow, 
will be coming out. <laughs> you know, and I thought, wow, they don't really care. They just want, they believe you're the person. To do. And then I got to thinking about all the years I'd been with a company called Eddie Holiday, and not one person ever, when I showed up at the door, said, oh, excuse me, where's Eddie? <laughs> not one person. They called Eddie, and they didn't care who came. And so I think that's more a mental block we have, and it didn't take me long to realize that I'm thinking they're thinking about me more than they're thinking about me. We've talked about how you built up the mega agent team, how you achieved the seventh level. We've talked about how you sold the team. You've also mentioned this wealth building. You started out, you know, when you got into real estate, 600000 in the hole in debt, and now you've built it up to a significant income. How, how much income have you raised that up to in, in all these endeavors that you have now? Probably our total income this will be a year will be a little bit over $3 million. Now, here's the reality of that. About 95% of that is, is true passive, time-wise. I mean, because I, I think everything you have won't totally always be passive. Like, we got investment properties, but somebody's got to manage those, right? Okay, just not us. So majority of our money is passive, but I will tell you, we've bought 108 single family homes over the years, and we have 12 nightly rentals, and we're building three more of those in Branson, and then we have about six commercial. But in our passive money that's coming in, none of that is counted from really from the investments yet. And here's why. we, When we decided to invest in real estate, we wanted to... It, Jimmy was about to turn 40, and we wanted to make sure that we had about, at the time, it's kind of laughable now, we thought, okay, if we have 250000 coming in from real estate investments, that'll be great. What we didn't know at the time is we would own other businesses, we would get a large amount of profit share from Kilowin's profit share. There's just so many things we didn't know at the time. We thought real estate investing was going to be our only way to build some passive income. So we've never really counted any of our investment property money, they all cash flow. Our, our formula says they have to cash flow about 150 to $200 a month. So they all do that or we wouldn't buy them. But what we do is as they started to pay, uh, pay the, you know, get paid off because we're running into that time now where we're, you know, getting between 15 and 20 years of having most of them, what we do is we take that money and we apply it to another property. So when they're all paid off, that'll be another $146,000 a month coming in from those investments. So when we decided to do investment properties, we weren't doing it for cash flow then. We were doing it for cash flow in the future. And we were also kind of looking at that as a way to build net worth. And that's what we were doing it for originally. And because at the time, we were in our, and we still are, in our peak earning years, and we didn't know how things would play out. We just knew that that was a problem, that, that realtors got to a certain age and a certain time and they didn't want to sell anymore or couldn't sell anymore and they didn't have anything. And so we just didn't want to be in that situation. But, of course, since then, we've decided to open other real estate-related businesses and things like that. But our first original kind of freedom number was going to come from us investing in real estate. So it's kind of funny how it's actually played out because we really thought that we were going to need that real estate investment money someday to replace our real estate sales money. So, and as it's played out, we've actually done other things that have been extremely profitable and, and, uh, and we still enjoy investing in real estate and we still do it, but it's, it's not what we thought, originally thought what we thought we were going to need it for. 
And on those real estate investments, you mentioned the ultimate gross income is going to be 146000 per month once they're all paid off. And you mentioned how many properties. Can you give us an idea of valuation, what the, the total value of the properties are at this point? Our single families would be somewhere around $20 million. And our commercial, that would be our single family and our probably our nightly rentals. And then our commercial properties would probably have a net value of about $10 million. That's fantastic. And and as you said, you're taking the positive income streams, the positive cash flows out of them now, and you are running down the debt that you used to acquire the properties. And within some period of time, all the debt will be gone and your net worth is going to jump up, at least on the real estate side, your net worth is going to jump up to, I'm estimating now, $30 million or so. That's an incredible achievement. That's, that's really fantastic. Congratulations. How many years before they all pay off? Yeah, I'm trying to think. We're probably, let's see, our first property we bought in 1990-something. I want to say maybe 93 or 94, actually while we were still in debt because we had we decided we, you know, we didn't want to be in the situation where we were ever in that kind of situation again. And so we thought, okay, let's build some, let's build some passive money with real estate and I remember finding the first deal, and Jimmy said, that's all great, Linda, but how in the heck are we going to buy that thing? And, you know, I'm all excited because I found a good deal, <laughs> and he kind of rains on my parade, and and I said, well, let's see, that is a problem. Uh, we are still in debt. We still haven't gotten everything paid off, and so we're, we we got a problem, and I just went and found a, a builder that I had been working with and asked him to be our partner, and he did the first three properties with us. So the first, now the first one we split, so it's no longer there. The second we bought is um, a property that we wound up, he wound up helping us reconstruct and make into a fourplex. And we actually still own that property today. And it brings in about $2,100, $2,200 a month. And it's free and clear. So that one's free and clear. And that's the first one we bought. So I'm thinking we probably have maybe seven or eight that are free and clear at least. And I'd have to go get Michelle to run me a report and tell me that for sure. But they, you know, and they're getting down so small. We were just talking the other day. It's like, you know, where's the where's the second book that tells you what you should do? Because I've been on several investor podcasts, and no one seems to know. I mean, you don't. We don't really need to pay any of them off. We could pay some more of them off, but why? I mean, we don't need the cash from it. And then I think things kind of change. You know, you have to get with your CPA, and things kind of change when all of a sudden you don't have that debt. <laughs> now it's more taxes to pay and all that stuff. So they're all kind of trickling off. The first one that we bought back then has been paid off really for quite a while. So I assume probably over the next five years, we're going to have quite a few of them completely pay off. And then, of course, the cabins we did later, so those will be a long time. We actually have one of the cabins paid off just because we bought it so low and it cash flowed so good. We actually got it paid off in two and a half years. But that was when we were being able to short sell those cabins. Their that market has changed now. You're paying a lot more for a cabin, so it's going to take us a lot more on those. So, I guess some of the earlier ones will keep paying off, but some of the ones we bought, you know, in '08 and '09, and that. So I guess all of those you kind of just have to count out. Fifteen. Some of them we did fifteen. Some of them we did twenty. But we got quite a few already starting to move. You know, it's kind of like and that snowballing really makes things go a lot faster when you take the income that you know, you had on one that now is free and clear and pay that on something else. You mentioned initially you bought a property, you were 
you were in debt or in trying to get out and, and it, you, know, you didn't have a lot of cash lying around at that point and you made an arrangement where you partnered up with a builder, I'm sure people are interested to hear what kind of arrangement did you put together? Well, the first one was a property that we, we thought we were going to just flip and take the 15000 cash. I, we didn't, you know, we wrote the book Hold a few years ago, and that has truly ultimately long-term been our, our strategy to buy and hold properties because, remember, we were trying to create crack cash flow in the future. And so we, we did, you know, we were in good income earning years. We didn't want to flip things because we didn't need more cash then. We wanted cash in the future. So that's why our strategy became Hold, and that's how we ultimately got asked to to write the last book in Gary's trilogy called Hold. But at the time when we bought our first property, we didn't have that identified clearly. Uh, and this one, we thought we would just flip it and make the 15000 And when we did that, which we did the first one, about that time, a, a girl in my office was handling RTC properties. And that's what this one was, I guess, because it maybe had been a identified to be a fourplex because it was that's usually what RTC means more commercial type properties and uh, so anyway so she approached us and said hey I got one over here by North Texas it's 15,000 bucks so we just asked Lou would he take the 15,000 instead of us splitting it would we could we put it into this property and what we said is look I'll throw in my commission but we need to be partners on this we can find them but you, you know you're going to have to do majority here because we're in the situation we're in. So he put in, I think it wound up being 60000 to fix it all up. And then we financed it. We got it financed and we just became partners. And then we bought a second one next to another university that we have in our town. And later we just split. We said, Lou, which property do you want? We'll let you take whichever one you want. We'll take the other one. So he took the one closest to Texas Women's University and we took the one closest the University of North Texas, and we laughed today because Jim got a notice in the mail a few years ago that said if he took his Social Security, he would get like $1,300 a month, and we laughed because <laughs> that one property pays $21, $2,200 a month, and then, or he could have this little $1,300 a month. He said, 40 years of working, I get that much money. That's not very much. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've mentioned that your strategy has been to buy and hold and and pay off, pay down the, the debt as quickly as possible to turn it into future cash flows. So the only you don't you rarely flip then. It sounds like the first one you did just to get some cash going. But have you flipped since then or is everything you do buy and hold? Yeah, we we have. We have flipped and we do it in several instances. One, if it's kinda way more expensive in a price range than we feel like is a good what we call kind of a sweet spot to have rental property. You know, back there in the downturn, we came across a lot of properties, and so one of them was a lot more expensive, and we made $100,000 on that one. So, I mean, that one we flipped because it was it's way above the range that we typically have our investment properties in that, you know, because what happens when the market gets good, if your house is too expensive a month, people are going to go buy a house. And so there's a sweet spot where you'll always have renters no matter what the market is, and we try to stay in that sweet spot for our area, and everybody's area would be different on that. So if it was above that range, we would flip it. If it has a pool, we don't like the liability of a pool in our investment property, we'll flip it. Or sometimes, you know, our strategies kind of change a little bit on properties. If it's, you know, like something we don't really like to deal with anymore, like too old or something like that, we'll flip it. So, yeah, we do we do occasionally flip, but the majority of our time, it's, it's buy them and hold them. Could you describe your ideal rental property? It sounds like you have a, a concept of what that is. 
Yeah, it's a 322-422 majority brick and in stable or upcoming neighborhoods. Yeah, we we used to do old houses and we kind of, we fell in love with them because of the hardwood floors and then then we fell out of level with them after you have enough of them. So we we just said, okay, let's do 322s or 422s, majority brick and uh, in stable or neighborhoods that are moving up. And they're going to probably rent for about twelve to fifteen hundred is probably going to be our real sweet spot. As many of those as we can get, we get. How much does a home in your area with those dimensions typically cost? Well, we've bought them at different prices, of course. I mean, and 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 if we buy them now, you know, like we we bought a couple recently at the foreclosure step, so. You know, we we had to pay 115 now for one that we would have bought for 75 or 80 in the downturn. But what you have to do is be willing to put more money down. We have a certain formula, so if we buy more, if we pay more for the property, the criteria is it has to have 70 to 30 loan to value ratio. It has to be 10, at least 10% below market when we buy it, and it has cash flow of 150 to 200 dollars a month on a 15 to 20 year payout. So we may have to adjust the cash we put into it to do that and so that's the only difference which we bought a ton but during that downturn there were so many and now you know you just got to fight and scratch for them because there's not as many of them or you have to pay a little bit more for them and then you have to just put more down on them but the rates are also uh, really good right now too so you know it could range between 95 to you know 115 you said you make an adjustment in your down payment to make sure that you're achieving your goals of that $200, uh, $100 to $200 a month of positive cash flow, and that they're going to pay off on a 15 to 20-year note. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas during the downturn, we could get 80% of the appraised value. So we might have some properties that they, they match that criteria, but we didn't have any down payment in it because we bought them so low. Well, now you're not buying them so low, so you're probably going to have to put a little more of your cash down to get them. Are these properties typically in the middle of your market? They're not on the low end, not on the high end, they're in the middle? Yeah, they're, they're, starting, to move to, they're starting to be where they are more on the low end because everything else is going up so much. Do you ever invest through a retirement account, like a self-directed IRA? No, I mean, we just never did that. And... Um, you know, we just invested in what we knew and we, what we felt like we could understand, which was real estate. We haven't done that great at stocks. We stink at it. <laughs> uh, I have uh, I do a, we- a webinar once a month, and it's on multiple streams of income. And one of the things I had a guy last month that really made a lot of sense, he teaches stuff on how to do stocks, and he talks about how you learn how to buy a stock in a sweet spot. And so my theory on stock has been, uh, whatever we're buying, don't buy it, <laughs> because we don't do very good at it. <laughs> so for whatever reason, we, we always just took whatever extra money we had and did it in, the, in real estate, and we've never done any of that self-directed IRA. Don't, we don't really know much about it, so we haven't. I'm sure there's some people that are doing great, great with it, but we don't know anything about it, so we haven't. You mentioned when we started the wealth building section that you currently have about a $3 million a year income, and that's fantastic, and 95% of it's passive. You also mentioned it does not include the, the, let me clarify, that that does not include the income coming off of the real estate properties that we've been talking about. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, there may be a little bit left, little bit left from our accounts. We just don't, 
that they're not pay, all paid off yet. So, and we're taking that money and so a small percentage of that would be in that three million, but not the majority because we don't have them all paid off yet. But when we have them paid off, that'll be an extra, whatever, 146, about 146,000 is a month. That's probably a million something at least. Yeah, about 1.8 or so. And that'll increase your income even further, which is phenomenal. The 3 million, so again, so people can have a vision of how far they can take this thing. Where is that coming from? What is the income source for the 3 million if it's not the real estate? The majority is several things. Uh, when we got our life back from the sales, you know, the, the 80 hours a week I was working on real estate sales. No, not quite, but by that time. But anyway, uh, we went out and said, okay, what other businesses make the most sense for us to do? And so um, we own three Keller Williams Realty franchises, two in Texas and one in Kentucky that we just took over that's relatively new for us this year. And uh, Keller Williams has a profit share program where, whereby if you help any market center grow, they have a profit share program where those owners have agreed in their franchise docs to pay up to almost 50% of their profits into what they call a profit share pool. And I happen to be the recipient of about a million, it'll be about a million two this year uh, of that because we were very well connected uh, in the real estate industry. And uh, we had lots of very influential people that we knew in the real estate industry. And when we started looking at this company, we really believed it was going to, now back then it, it, you, you were just hoping it was going to do great. But we really believed in Gary and we believed in the concepts of the company and what he was trying to do. And so we joined. And when we joined, um, we're very learning-based. So we had connected with some of the most high-producer, high-minded people across the country. And we just said, hey, you need to come here about this company. I don't know if it's for you or not for you, but you need to come here. And so some of them said, wow, yeah, this is, this is, this is where it's at and what, there's some great opportunity here. And so they joined. And so that made us, over time, be someone who's rewarded. Well, we actually are number one this year for Kelly's on profit share. And that'll be about a million two of our income. And then the rest of it is market centers. We own a, uh, also own a region for Keller Williams. Gary had approached us at one time and said, you know, you've earned the right really to grow a region. And there's one region left and it's in Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. And so uh, I said, okay, great. <laughs> where, where the heck is Ohio? And uh, I started going up there one week a month about probably about 12, 13 years ago. And I just started calling on people to do Keller Williams franchises, and now we have 22 market centers in that region that are now Keller Williams and uh, about 3,000 associates, and we're still growing. So, so that became kind of my job once I wasn't in the real estate sales business every day. That became my, my number one responsibility to, to go grow that region. So you kind of lump all those together, and that's how we get the, the $3 million. And a little bit of that would be some of the properties that are paid off or whatever's left after we pay taxes and all that stuff, but not a lot, not, not a very big portion of it. Wow, Linda, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for describing that to us, opening up and showing us how big someone can take this. And congratulations to you for, for making it that big. Well, thank you. And really, truly, Mike, one of, my, one of my beliefs is I hope that people can look at us and say, man, if those guys can do it, I can do it. Because, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we're just average people that really, um, you know, we just, we were blessed to have great mentors in our life that made us look bigger and believe that 
bigger opportunities were available for us because honestly, in the real estate business, no one had ever done that. You you kind of saw people that owned real estate franchises as different people than us that sold real estate. And, you know, Gary's belief was, gosh, if you can go build a great real estate business, why can't you own, you know, a market center? And they're great opportunities. And so it took turning our belief around that we that we could learn how to do it or we, you know, could do it. But but I'm just thankful because um, I think real estate agents are fabulous entrepreneurs. And I think we can, I think what we have to be trained to do is learn to walk through that next natural door that's trying to open. And no one had ever taught us to do that. I mean, I'd never seen people do that. And I, I really hope in my, you know, what I really would love to share with, uh, with other real estate agents is you've got to learn how to build passive income because you want options in your life someday. And with passive income, you have options Without it, you have a real estate job, and I don't think any of us quit a job to have another job. We quit a job to have a business, and so uh, once I learned business, though, I realized, well, why stop with just my team as a business? Why couldn't I do other businesses? And so my hope is somebody else out there is going to say, you know what, why not me? Why can't my life really be big? Why can't I really find more opportunity and walk through that door because I think the nat- the natural doors are there and they try to open for us. I just don't think we know how to look for them and walk through them. Linda, let's talk about that for a minute. I, I believe, I think that you've developed a, a training program for real estate agents. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we have a passion. You know, I, uh, my purpose statement is I help successful but overworked real estate entrepreneurs understand the power of leverage and passive income so that they can have freedom and margin for what matters most. And so I just get up every day and say, what could I do that would really fulfill that? And I'm so grateful for the real estate industry because it took us from our $600,000 in debt and to an amazing life that that one of our sons is now able to join us in. My brother-in-law has raised his family on and created opportunity for him and you know, I just love raising the bar on what's possible because I think we're one of the last great pioneering opportunities this industry is. And so I have a passion to help everybody in it to be better and to think bigger and to have bigger opportunities. And so we kind of sat back last year and said, what's something we could do? And I have a great team that's helping me. I'm intrigued by the online world and and I think that's where we're headed. I know for me, I don't want to wait for a class or something to come in the mail anymore. I want that thing right now available to me on online. Give it to me. And I want to be able to digest it and think about it when I want to think about it. And so we just kind of started in this venture. And I have a great team that put together an amazing ebook. that's a free ebook that we give away that the it, we, we took some of the top 17 of the, of the top agents. And we had so many more. But these guys are really just blazing a trail in this industry and together they do over about two billion in volume so this is how big this group is and they put together an amazing ebook just to pass that information along to other people to help them have their best year ever and so our free ebook if if it's okay for your audience to have is they can text to three three four 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 the word best the words best year but do it as one word so best year as one word to text it to 33444 and they can have a copy of that ebook and they did a fabulous job and so we like you Mike we just want to bring the industry up as much as we can we want to make people think bigger and have bigger lives in this industry because I think we're a we're an industry that really serves other people really well and we give a lot of ourselves and I want us to have 
big lives at the end of it. I want us to have something that we're proud of and that it's asset, just like you trying to do the same thing with your audience. You want them to have the best information so that they can do that. And, and this is really our just kind of way of putting information out there for agents to have their best year. And if they wanted to learn more about your training, is there anywhere they could go online? We have lindamckissick.com is probably the best place to start. We also have agents uh, best year uh, that we're working on putting together now. But the best place probably is lindamckissick.com is a good place to start. We have a lot of videos and just some different free things that are on there that people can have access to. Uh, I've done a webinar for the last couple of years, so we have a lot of good Q&A from that webinar that we just share freely on that, on that website. Well, Linda, what I'd like to ask you now is what drives you? You know, I think that that's a great question, uh, and I even had advance warning that you were gonna you were gonna ask it. And you know, and I think we all probably have people in our family that have said to us before, "Why can't you just be normal?" I, I laugh and tell this cute story. My sister is ten years and two days older than me, but she really is my hero because literally we had uh, kind of a messed up family. And so I remember at twelve years old, my sister. Imagine my sister's twelve. I'm two. I remember her being the parent of me to taking care of me and helping me. So she really is someone that is a hero to me. But I remember for years she would say, Linda, honey, because she's different. <laughs> she likes consistency and systems and, you know, normalcy. And, you know, and I like crazy all the time and crazy schedule and busy. And, and she said, Linda, you know, why can't you just be normal? <laughs> why you got to do so much, you know? And it's so cute, I tell the story that it only took me two first-class trips to Hawaii to get her to stop asking me that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think all of us that are driven kind of just have this inner wiring. And, you know, I think for me, getting clear on my purpose statement, I think all of us struggle with what is is the why. I think, you know, the 600,000 debt was a have-to. That's different than a why of why you're driven. And I think uh, Gary Keller did the best job one time helping me talk through this when I was getting this a lot from some top agents I was working with. And I think we get confused. I think we can, we think of money as the end all. And so, we, we, you know, we, people will sometimes say, well, how much is enough? And that, that question always drove me crazy and bugged me. And I realized later on that the reason it bugged me is because it's never been about the money. Money is a byproduct of you when you help enough other people. So when I wake up and say, what could I do all day long that I never think about how, how long I've been doing it or that it's time to eat or anything, and that purpose statement that I just told you is the thing, that if I'm doing that, the world and the time around me just disappears. And I really feel that I was designed to do that because I remember when I sold real estate at a high level, I remember having days thinking, Lord, is this my mission, honestly? Is this why you put me here to do this? I mean... If not, why didn't you make me crappy at it? Because if I was not good at it, it would be easy for me to say, oh, yeah, no, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. But to be really, really good at it and then still feel like it wasn't exactly what you were put here to do. And then one day I realized I had to be really, really good at real estate to be able to do what I do now, which is help that successful but overworked real estate entrepreneur really get their arms around leverage and passive income so that they can have freedom and margin for what matters most in life. And, you know, it took me getting to do that and being valid in real estate opened up the doors to those relationships to do that to make me realize that that's why I think people have to walk through the next natural door because 
Gary said to me when I was struggling with this one day and I was struggling because other people kept giving it to me, he said, Linda, life is about becoming. And the way we become is to get up and achieve. You know, sports teams don't win one Super Bowl and quit or one game and quit. They keep getting up and trying to be better. And the way we become better and we become, and I thought about that and I thought, I am, I wouldn't have become the person I am if I hadn't gotten up and tried to achieve. And so I think that's what drives me. I think it's what drives most people. But what we have a hard time connecting with is what's that thing that is your unique ability that, man, when you get in that zone, time goes away, food's not important. I mean, all those things. And so I think it's kind of a zone (laughs) that you get into. And I think that's what drives me. I, you know, I think I was given a gift when Jimmy suggested I get into real estate, but I think there's a bigger plan and a bigger purpose for me than just selling it. And so that's, I think listening to that and being, you know, being courageous enough to walk through those scary doors. I mean, it was scary to turn my business over to Brad. I'm not going to lie, you know, and it's been scary to own, you know, to go invest in real estate. It's been scary to open Tullin's franchises, but um, I think, being courageous is where your life gets bigger because even though I didn't know how I was going to do it at the time, that fear and being so afraid make, causes you to go out and get those answers. And then I get more confidence as I get those credentials and those answers and I'm able to go out and make bigger and stronger commitments each time. And so I could not have envisioned my life here. Twenty, I couldn't have painted this for you. I just was willing to get up and and become by achieving. And so I think that's kind of what everybody is driven by. There's some kind of inner something that's a bigger plan or purpose. But sometimes I don't, I think we just kind of stay below a certain ceiling and we don't walk through the door and see what's on the other side. You know, every single scary, even sometimes awful thing that's happened to me, like the the crash in the 80s, has been a blessing that I didn't know was a blessing. It what didn't come in a shiny, pretty package with a bow. It came ugly and hard. And but being willing to walk through that and walk on the other side is where the where the beautiful gift of the breakthroughs and a bigger uh, life. And when your life is bigger, you have more options you can do. You know, there's more people. I told the group yesterday. I said, you know, what we have to realize in real estate, what you're saying yes and no to is way bigger than what you think. You know, I didn't realize it, but, you know, back years ago when I was saying yes to building a big business, what I was saying yes to is that my kids, when they came to me and said, I want to go to Baylor University, and it's twice as high or three times as high as someplace, I didn't have to say, no, y'all need to pick someplace else. (laughs) You know, can't do that. I said, that's awesome. Let's look into it. Let's figure it out. And, you know, I have a friend that said, you know, he he has, because he has passive income and he's created a bigger life. You know, his mom, we're all going to be in a season someday when our parents, and we're the first generation that our parents and our kids might need our financial help. You know, he said his his mom's care is, you know, in, in the kind of facility that she's in is nine grand to 12 grand a month. God bless him for being able to have that option to say, yes, mom, I want you to be here. I don't want you to be somewhere because we can't afford for you to be there. And so I think... If we once we realize that what we're saying yes and no to is about options we're going to have in the future, you know, we lost a, a son-in-law at the age of uh, 29 three years ago, and for ten and a half months he fought a major battle, 
six hours south of us, and we had the options to go be there for every single minute of that, except for three weeks, because we had said yes to certain things, to being willing to do that, and our money is coming in passively, and we had the freedom to go do that. And I'm so thankful, because I don't have any regrets of being there when he wrote books and he got them published while he's, you know, hanging on for his life and he's getting things done because he knows he's out of time. And what a gift. But we said yes to that long before we knew we were saying yes to that. Well, Linda, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Oh, man, I tell them to go get a bigger picture of what this thing can be and, and go for building a big business day one. Don't just say, how do I go make a sale? Go look at the biggest person you can find in this business and go, man, all right, I'm going to start day one trying to do that. Because I think so many of us start out and just say, oh God, I just need to make a living. I need some sales to make some money. And whereas if we just set out to make this a really big, big business and read the the millionaire real estate agent book. I mean, read that and let that be your blueprint and your, uh, you know, your model that you follow and stick to it like glue. Don't get off of it. Just, just say people have lived before me and they're all in this book and I'm going to do what they say. Linda, do you think the top agent interviews like this one with mastermind agent are valuable? Oh gosh, Mike, absolutely. I, I, I love it. You and I both talked about how, We got so much out of when Howard Britton did it years ago and what a void it was for that to no longer be there. Absolutely. My life and my career wouldn't have been where it is today without these kind of interviews and people willing to talk freely and openly and be transparent about what the possibilities are. Well, Linda, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? No, I would just say, you know what? You're in a fabulous industry. Oh, my goodness. We are in such a great industry. And your life is going to be as big as you believe it can be. And I think probably, Mike, you probably had some amazing interviews on here of agents that are going to be great examples for anybody listening. And just, you know, when you hear these ideas, you know, take action on them. You know, just take something from every interview and say, I'm going to do that and I'm going to move my business and my life forward. But this is, this is way bigger opportunity than you probably ever dreamed it could be. So go find big models and really, I mean, this is a life-changing industry. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that we still have the ability to be in it because, you know, big corporations haven't taken over and, you know, made us all employees and all that kind of stuff. So take advantage of that great American opportunity that we all love and the freedoms and the opportunities and go make as big a business and a big a life as you possibly can. And don't forget to walk through that next natural door that's going to open for you as you are successful. Well, Linda, you showed us how to turn a real estate career into a big business and a big life. You started out your career 600000 in debt. Through hard work and smart moves, you now have $3 million in passive income per year and a huge net worth. You showed us how to truly achieve a seventh-level team, how to sell your team, how to invest in real estate rentals, and build real estate businesses. You are an inspiration for just how big an agent can take this business. 
Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 218 homes last year worth $44 million. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.